Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your, uh, your word, for the gift of the Bible. As I was on my way to church this morning, I was listening to a sermon from another pastor on loving the truth. And Lord, as uh, people of the book, as uh, people of God, as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray this morning for us as a church, for each individual in here, that we foster a love for truth. And Lord, we know that truth only has one source, and that is you. You are truth. Your word is truth, as Jesus himself said. Father, we live in a day, and it's been this way for the past few decades. We went from postmodernism, where people said that truth was relative, to now where people saying there is no truth, there's no objective truth, that truth is what you make it to be. What's true for you may not be true for me. And Lord, this has been an assault on our consciences through the various forms of media, whether through social media, whether through television programming, whether through uh, movies, even in the sports realm, and the political realm. Lord, there's an assault on biblical truth. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that you strengthen all of us in here within the sound of my voice and all those who will hear this to strengthen our resolve to batten down the hatches, to put our stakes in the ground, to throw out our anchor, and to stand on your truth. We have no room to compromise. Whenever compromise happens, truth goes out of the door. There's never a time, there's never been a time where truth has been compromised and it remained true. Well, we must not compromise. We must not bow the knee to the, the pressures that the culture tries to bring our way from our children and what they're learning in schools to adults and what we're hearing in the workplace and what our companies may be promoting. To those of us who are in the public square, who do their business out in public, and what they see, Lord, no matter what sphere we're in, we as believers must hold to truth, no matter what it may cost us. We're not here to seek worldly and earthly gain. As Christ himself said, what does it profit to gain the whole world, to gain the world's acclaim and the world's acceptance and the world's adoration? That's what that means. 
What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Many men, many women have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and have worshiped created things. As Paul said in Romans 1, we're living in a Romans 1 world. We're seeing it being laid out right before our eyes. But Lord, my prayers for us as a church, us as individuals, families here in our church is that we stand on your truth. That we don't lie to people. That we don't lie to them. That we lovingly proclaim truth to them. To not lie to people about their delusions about themselves or about their relationships or about their children or whatever the case may be. But that we proclaim your truth. Strengthen our resolve, Lord. Strengthen our backbones. Because the time will come where we will be called on the carpet about what we believe. And many a Christian have folded. They've caved to the pressures that the culture is trying to bring on us. Many have bowed the knee to godless ideologies, godless philosophies, godly, uh, godless worldviews. Many have just simply caved, just folded, instead of standing firm on your truth. Father, give us all that resolve that when that day comes, that we, our knees will not be weakened, but that we may stand firm on your truth and contend earnestly for the truth once for all delivered to the saints. Strengthen the resolve of this church. Strengthen my resolve as the shepherd of your flock that I, myself, not cave to the false ideologies, the false worldviews. Strengthen my resolve, the resolve of my family, my children, all of us, all of our children. Strengthen our resolve, Lord. Lord, also pray this morning for our sister churches, the same thing that, that we discussed in our last uh, pastoral meeting, that you strengthen the resolve of all of our uh, brethren that are shepherding the other churches in our cohort that you give them strength to be faithful in proclaiming your truth that you strengthen all of their church members in their stands for the truth also Lord Satan is on the prowl he is roaming to and fro seeking whom he may devour but Peter tells us in that same chapter to resist him steadfast in the faith. And I pray for all of our sister churches and, and, and their members that they do the same thing. Fathers, we come down to the preaching of your word this morning. 
Lord, we know that in ourselves we are dull. We know also that our enemy, the devil, seeks to steal your word from us. We know, Lord, that unless your spirit gives us soft hearts, that we will resist and refuse your word. Lord, I pray that you remove from all of us resistance to Christ and his gospel. Remove from us all obstacles to our spiritual growth and fruitfulness in your kingdom. Lord, I pray for your help that I might preach and teach your word with clarity of scripture, with clarity and with wisdom in keeping with the meaning of the scripture in this context. Lord, I pray for your wisdom as I preach. I pray also, Lord, that all of us, all of us, Lord, as your people, that we may receive your word with humility and submission. And so, Lord, instruct us so that your people may give you glory. Lord, cause us to respond to your word by understanding what you say and obeying what you command. Lord, may your word bear fruit in our lives and produce Psalm 100-fold, Psalm 60-fold, and Psalm 30-fold. In Jesus' name, amen. May let us turn to Ezra, the seventh chapter. We're continuing in our series through the book of Ezra. I pray that the word of the Lord has been a blessing to you all as it has been uh, preached. I'm encouraged when I hear people say how much the word of God has encouraged them. And uh, we pray that the Lord continues to do that work in all of us. Our sermon topic this morning is divine providence. I've you know, talked about it the last few weeks. Um, but this morning with the context of the passage, we're going to be able to dig more into this uh, great doctrine of God. Divine providence. So we're going to uh, read the word of the Lord here this morning. It says, now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzai, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all the requests according to the land of the Lord God upon him. I'm sorry, according to the hand of the Lord God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. In the first day, 
of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, a scribe in the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your land, hand. And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the kings and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of in Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And the letter uh, continues. I'm going to skip down here to verse 21. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may acquire, require rather of you, let it be done diligently up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Then skip it down to verse 27 here uh, after the end of the letter. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing such a thing such as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the kings and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. May the Lord bless his word. Um, I have a high school classmate of mine. He's a, he's a Christian. He, he and his wife, they have uh, three children. They have two sons and a daughter, and they're all adults now. But about maybe six, seven years ago, he told me, uh, you know, he was telling me about his kids, you know, how they were doing, you know, we were catching up and everything. And he told me about his two sons. They were in college, and his daughter was, I think, in the maybe 11th grade. And something happened with her where, she got this idea that she wanted to drop out of school, out of high school. I think she was 17 at the time, and of, of course, my uh, classmate, 
said, uh, no, that's not happening. You know, your brothers, you know, went through school and, you know, they went to college and everything and they're in school right now and you're going to at least finish high school. You know, she was very insistent on it over a few months period that she was ready to drop out of school. So, lo and behold, they were on a trip. Uh, the mother, my classmate, his wife, and the daughter, they were on a trip to go see their, uh, visit her, 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 one of her brothers in college when they got into a car accident. And in the course of the car accident, the daughter had, uh, both of her legs were broken and her right arm was broken and she was right-handed. And so her brothers, you know, being a selfless God, you know, God-fearing a young men had, uh, you know, decided to take a break from their college studies and to go home and help their parents tend to their sister. And what do you know? They had to take care of her and help her do her schoolwork. And she ended up graduating from high school. Although she thought a year or so before that she wanted to quit school. But through providence, through God's providence, she didn't get what she wished. She was able to graduate from high school despite what she thought she wanted to do a year or so later. You may look at this story and say, man, that's, that's terrible. Why would you say that that was God's providence? Well, we'll, we'll see about that in a moment. Um, but anyway, Ezra 7 begins with the return of uh, Ezra and a second smaller group of exiles that we will uh, see next week in chapter uh, 8. And chapter 7 takes place approximately 56 to 60 years um, after the events of chapter 6. And so during that time, the events in the book of Esther uh, took place. You know, Esther, the events took place. That was about a 60, 58, 60 year period of the uh, events in the book of Esther took place uh, between chapters uh, 6 and 7 because at the beginning of Esther we see that Artaxerxes was the king that uh, Esther uh, was under. If you know the story, you know, Artaxerxes uh, banished his wife from the kingdom because, you know, she would not uh, do as um, you know, she was told, so to speak. So uh, Queen Vashti uh, was her name, uh, his wife, and you know, he expelled her from the kingdom because she would not show herself in front of all of his royal guests. So that was the same Artaxerxes that we're reading about here at the beginning of chapter uh, 7. So by this time, most of not all the exiles who had returned with Zerubbabel from the first group, including the children, uh, had died off. Uh, because this is about a 60-year period. So most of those exiles who came back from that first group had, had died. So you had a whole new group of exiles. And what this shows us is that God always raises up others to carry out his redemptive purposes. We should never think that just because a person dies or a group of people die or a certain church closes or whatever the case may be, that God's plan does not continue. God is always raising up others to carry out his redemptive purposes. So in this case, we have Ezra, and he is God's priest and scribe. And then we have Artaxerxes, who is a pagan king, who will, by providence, 
and God's sovereignty, he will unwittingly be an instrument in God's plan. So that's what we're going to see take place in this chapter today. So what is this passage about? Our big idea is that uh, as the hand of God upon the people of God, God's providence qualifies us and works on our behalf for his glory. God's providence provokes genuine affections toward his word. God's providence is the means by which our requests are granted. And God's providence encourages the believer to praise him and prepares us for kingdom work. Those are, in essence, our four principles uh, that we're going to look at today. As God's hand is on us, we'll see all these principles play out in this passage. So the first question I'm going to answer is, what is providence? We talked about it, as I said, a lot the last uh, few weeks. Uh, a good theological definition from the International Bible Encyclopedia says that providence is the good hand of God in our lives and in our circumstances, past, present, and future. Okay? God is involved in a loving way in the whole of our lives, both in the blessings and the sufferings, the joys and the sorrows, the feasts and the famines. He provides and protects those who trust in him for his glory. Think about Romans 8 and 28. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord and the called according to his purpose. That good doesn't mean good circumstances as uh, some uh, Christians unerringly uh, think. Good means for God's good. His good, his glory in our lives. And so when we think about providence, like the story I gave you about the daughter of one of my classmates, uh, her, her, both her legs were broken. She recovered, and her wrist was broken. She wasn't able to write, so her brothers, um, you know, came home to help her. And providentially, she ended up graduating from high school, although she didn't want to. So that was a, quote, bad circumstance that God used to his glory. I want to read a couple of quotes here. One is from R.C. Sproul in his book about a providence called The Invisible Hand. And that book is about the providence of God. He talked about providence not only not a being not only that God looks at human affairs, but that God looks after human affairs. There's a, there's a big difference there. He says God not only watches us, but he watches over us. And this is how providence works. He says God doesn't just sit back and look. But God watches over us. He says God is involved in human affairs. <coughs> he is not like Aristotle's God. And Aristotle was one of the great uh, Greek philosophers. He says he is not like Aristotle's God. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher whose God was called the unmoved mover. Who remains totally aloof and uninvolved in human history. He says he is not a do-nothing king who reigns but does not rule. Spoke continues, the biblical God is not unmoved, but he is a moving mover. He is not only moving, but he moves things. He rules as well as reigns. 
He continues, God doesn't just sit and watch over us, but he is actively reigning in the life of his people. He is the moving mover. He is always active. He is always moving. He is superintending our lives. Uh, Peter Helm said in his book, The Providence of God, A Christian Theology, he says, it is an important part of our faith as Christians. Well, rather, an important part of our faith as Christians is that God cares for us and that the detail and direction of our lives are under the purposeful control of God. We draw comfort from the fact that nothing too small or nothing too big is escapable to God's care. He says, nothing is too big or too small to escape the attention of God. There's nothing too small in our life that God doesn't care about. No matter how small we think it is. Aren't we like that sometimes? We think that God doesn't care about some of these little trifle things in our life that we deal with. But that's not true of his divine providence. He said, we draw inspiration from the difficulties or from the fact that difficulties will disappear. But we're also aware that often when we pray, God does not appear to answer our prayers. And that personal tragedy, sickness, and bereavement can be allowed by God without alleviation. That can happen sometimes. We can earnestly pray for things and God doesn't take them away. God doesn't answer those prayers. But he says here when that happens it seems pointless and purposeless. But he says that Christians can receive evil things out of God's hand as well as good things. And in this medley of good and evil Christians may also be convinced that uh, secular events have occurred as a result of God's direct concern. We must understand that God works not only in our lives, but he works in the lives of those who don't trust him, who don't believe in him. He says it is also unfortunate that most Christians tend to think that providence has to do with only the spectacular things that happen in our life. And I think that's where a lot of Christians land, especially here in uh, American culture. You hear people saying terms like, that was a God thing. You ever heard people say that before? Perhaps some of us have used that term. And it's usually something that grabs a lot of attention or something that goes viral or something that somebody hears and says, wow, man, that's amazing. And we'll say, oh, that must have been a God thing. As if God only operates in, you know, the so-called spectacular attention-getting ways. But what David Helm, Peter Helm is telling us, rather, that no matter how big or how minute things are in our life, God is still working through all of them. And that's how we must understand providence. It is not just the big things. It's little things, little events that 
happen in our life that God superintends over also. In essence, everything is a God thing. If you break both of your arms and your legs and God has a redemptive purpose in that which he does, that was a God thing. It may not be an ideal circumstances, of course, but that does not negate providence. That does not negate that God has a redemptive purpose behind that happening. And we, of all people, uh, must know that. So let's look at our principle this morning. The, the first one is, uh, from our text, God's providence qualifies us and works on our behalf for his glory. The first thing that stood out to me uh, when I studied this passage was Ezra's genealogy. And this is crucial to understanding uh, who this man is and how God uses him. You remember uh, in Ezra, the second chapter, we talked about lessons from a list. And you had the list of all the, the first group of returning exiles, those names that uh, we find very difficult to pronounce. And, and the point that I was making is that there are still things that we can learn from those lists. Well, uh, we land here in the same, in the same um, circumstance. You know, it was Paul who said in 2 Timothy 3 and 16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching. So we can learn something from a genealogy. So this list that we see here means something. So let's examine it. Now this is not a, a complete genealogy, but we get to see his priestly qualifications in uh, verse 6. So the reason why the writer gives this genealogy is to show that Ezra is qualified to be a priest. And we know from especially reading the book of Leviticus that all priests had to come from the uh, Aaronic priesthood, from Aaron. They had to show that they were descendants of Aaron. And we see that in this list. This would justify his actions later on in this book. So you see here it says, Ezra, son of. Now, son of means descendant of in Hebrew. So it is showing his descendants, who he descended from. So only those who are sons of or descendants of Aaron could be priests. That is enumerated in particular in Numbers uh, 16, verses 39 and 40. That you had to come from the line of Aaron. And it says here in number 16, uh, verses 39 through 40, it says here, So Eleazar, whose name is in this uh, list, the priest took bronze censers, which those who were burned up and, uh, and they were hammered out in the covering of an altar, to be a memorial to the children of Israel, that no outsider who was not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might not become like Kor and his companions, just as the Lord has said to him through Moses. So no one could be a priest unless they were descendants of Abraham. So what do we see here? He was the son of. 
the son of. Then all the way down to verse 6, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. That was all providential that Aaron was born at the right time for this to happen. And all of his descendants had their children and their descendants and their descendants through all those generations. Until we get to this point in redemptive history where Ezra himself was priest. That's all providential. That's all God's providential timing. It wasn't a stroke of good luck. It was, it was God's timing. And why was this important, this list? Because as priest, Ezra has the authority to institute various uh, spiritual reforms in Israel, which we will see in subsequent chapters. So after the list, we begin to see providence working on Ezra's behalf again in verse 6, verse 9, and verse 11. Verse 6 says, These words, according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Verse 9 at the end, according to the good hand of his God upon him. And again in verse 11, the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. He was an expert. So we see here that God's hand was with him. So first in verse 6, we see that the king granted Ezra all his requests. And this was a foreshadowing of verses 12 through uh, 26, you know, the letter. He granted his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So Ezra asked the king, Artaxerxes, and the king complied. Why? Because God's hand of providence was upon him. It was not because of anything that Ezra did. It was not because of anything that the king did. There was nothing special about this king because he was a pagan. He was not a God worshiper. It was providence. It was God's divine providence that made this happen. It wasn't luck. It wasn't fate. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't the stars aligning. It didn't emanate from a palm reading. It was divine providence. Ezra was on a divine mission by God to institute spiritual reform to his people. And providence saw to it that it happened. He was the man for the job. And God superintended all the events in his life in order for this to happen. Also in verse 6, the text says that Ezra was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. In verse 11, we read that he was an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. So there are two things to note here. The scribe. And what does this mean? First of all, a, a scribe in this context, the Bible encyclopedia says that it is in his role that he reestablishes the centrality of the law for the people of Israel. He is responsible for not only the reading of the Torah to the people. The Torah is the, the uh, Jewish law but also for its study, the special administration of the scribes. So 
he had the duty of making sure that the people of Israel knew the law of God. And, and then secondly, through the careful administration and study of the law, Ezra became an expert in the commandments. And we see that in verse 11. And so as God's providence is applied to Ezra, he would be the Lord's servant in reestablishing the law of God as central to the faith of God's people. Again, he was the man that God had planned. We see that Ezra made the four-month journey according to the good hand of his God upon him. This was no easy journey. It was a four-month journey over almost a 1,000 miles. And the Faith Life Study Bible says this about this journey. It says the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem took four months and covered roughly 900 to 1,000 miles. A direct trip from Babylon to Jerusalem would have covered around 500 miles. You know, they say the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but that's not always practical. He's, they said, but this route was avoided because of the Arabian Desert. So Ezra's group would have followed the Euphrates River north and then journeyed west across the plains to Damascus and finally south through Samaria to Jerusalem. And this was a route that avoided uh, the desert. And this was a very dangerous trip that they took because they had to go through different uh, cities and different countrysides. And they had to deal with marauders who were basically uh, pirates on land who would raid their camps. So he made a very treacherous four-month journey. So we see from these few instances that God's providence worked on Ezra's behalf as he prepared his journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. God had qualified him. God had readied him before he sent him. He had to be a priest in order to issue reforms. He had to be a scribe in order to make sure that the law got into the hands of the people. And God had prepared all of this beforehand for that to happen. Amen. Principle number two. God's providence provokes genuine affections toward his word. So in response to divine providence, Ezra made a deliberate decision. He prepared his heart to seek the Lord, his God. He prepared his heart. Look at verse 10. It says, For Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So this decision was deliberate. It was purposeful. To seek or to study the law of God. So I asked myself as I was studying this passage. How do I prepare my heart to seek the Lord? Where does that desire come from? And perhaps this answer may help you because some of us may wane at times, as we all do in this Christian walk. We're not going to always be uh, on 100 or on 10 
when it comes to our desires for the Lord. However, when those desires wane, when we see them going away or dying out, we ought to seek the Lord. To say, Lord, how do I cultivate my desires for your word? So perhaps uh, this answer will help you. A great place for us to start is in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. About wanting spiritual growth. A lot of our prayer requests that we have for the Lord are probably about growing spiritually. And my encouragement is to keep seeking it. So the question is, how does spiritual growth look? How does it look? Number one, it must start with the word. All spiritual growth starts with the word of God. You think about Ezra when we look at this passage in 1 Peter. When we look at this 1 Peter passage, I want you to think about Ezra. As we read it, we see the first thing is the putting away of sin. We can't grow unless sin is renounced. And when this takes place, then the word does its work. And we'll see this in our first Peter passage again. Spiritual growth is always marked by a craving for and a delight in God's word with intensity like a baby craves milk. Those of us who had children know when you see babies, when they want that milk, they want it. <laughs> they will cry so loud no matter where they are. And when they get that milk, they get that bottle in their mouth and their eyes closed and their little feet get curled up. And they just go to town on that bottle. And that is the way we are to crave God's word. But a theologian that I read used this thing called REAPS. REAPS is an acronym for remembering, eliminating, admitting, pursuing, and surveying. So let's take a quick, uh, I won't say detour. Let's take a quick exit ramp. And let's turn to 1 Peter the second chapter and look at uh, this and we'll tie this back into what we are uh, talking about this morning. About preparing our hearts and how God providentially does that for us. So first Peter, which is toward the end of the New Testament, it's behind the book of Hebrews, James, and then you have 1 Peter. So first, 1 Peter 1 and 25. 1 Peter 1 and 25. Uh, Peter here, he's quoted from Isaiah 40. So the first one is to remember life's source. Remember life's source. That's what Ezra did. He remembered his source. 1 Peter 1 and 25 says, But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Peter's audience had to remember this word. This word endures forever. 
So we have to remember our source. What is our source? The word of God. We have to remember our source. The word of God endures forever. It is the word of the gospel which is preached to you every Sunday and is also preached to you every time you read it. You preach the gospel to yourself. And then next is eliminating, eliminating sin from his life. First Peter 2 and 1, the very next verse. What does Peter say? Therefore, therefore is therefore a reason. It is tying into the previous verse. The word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, having said that, Having established this truth, what are we to do? Lay aside. That means eliminate, put to death. What Paul says in Colossians, mortifying the deeds of the flesh. It says laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. John MacArthur said the Christian's new life can't grow unless sin is renounced. He said in his commentary on that verse. So we eliminate sin from our life. So we remember our source, which is the word. We eliminate sin, and then we admit our need for God's truth. Continuing in 1 Peter 2. As newborn babes desire the pure, or some translations say sincere, milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed, if indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So we are to admit our need for God's truth like newborn babes. Do we need the word? Jesus said in Matthew 4 and 4, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Lord, I need your word. I need your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. God's word and God's word alone is truth. And we are to admit our need for his truth because God's truth is the only truth that matters. Not the falseness of this world, the false ideologies, the false philosophies, the false worldviews, unbiblical worldviews of this world. No, we need God's truth. And we need to admit it. Lord, I need your truth. I need your word. I need you to reveal your truth to me as I read it. James tells us, James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom in what? Knowing God's word. Let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and doesn't hold back. You need wisdom in understanding God's word? Ask for it. Surprise. That is a prayer that God will answer. God wants you to have an understanding of his word, so that is a prayer that he would honor. Next, we are to pursue 
spiritual growth, uh, that you may grow thereby, desiring the sincere miracle of the word, that you may grow. And then we survey God's providence. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So those are ways to cultivate your heart to seek the law of God. And if you notice all these point us outward instead of inward to ourselves and in worship of ourselves and in love of ourselves. No, they push us outward. They push us outward to God. Eliminating sin starts with God, knowing who God is, how God views sin. Admitting our need for God's truth, we have to look to God for his truth and not to ourselves, not to your truth, which is not truth at all if it's not based in God's truth. Spiritual growth starts with God. Everything starts with him. So this is how we can cultivate that. So back to what we're looking at with Ezra here. That his desire. Was to prepare his heart. To seek the law of God. It doesn't happen by. As my high school band director used to always say. It doesn't happen by osmosis. (laughs) It's not just going to appear, okay? Spiritual growth and spiritual desires don't just happen because we are in a spiritual war. Our spirit is warring against our ever-present flesh. As Paul said in Romans 7, wherever I would do good, evil is always present with me. We still have that spiritual battle, so guess what? We got to fight. We fight with God's power and with God's help. It is ultimately a victorious fight. But as long as we're in this flesh, as long as we're in this earthly tabernacle, as Paul called it, guess what? We're going to have to struggle. We're going to have to press forward. Paul says what? Press toward the mark. It's It's a pressing in with the Spirit's help. We press in to grow spiritually. We, we press in to reading the word. We press in to prayer. We press in in getting rid of sin in our life. It is not a hopeless, helpless endeavor. The more we do it, we look back years later, we will see how God has grown us, how God has persevered us. Some of us now can look back where we were five years ago or, or 10 years ago, or just one year ago, how God has, has, has grown you as you have, have pursued him. So looking here in this passage, we see the case with Ezra as a response to God's redeeming aim and, and surveying God's providence. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of God. He wanted more of that grace. He wanted more of God's providence in his life. Now, Ezra, not only did he seek the word, but he also lived and taught the word. If you look at the rest of verse 10, you will see 
For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the Lord, the law of the Lord, and to what? Do it. Not just seek it, not just read it, but also to what? To do it and to teach it. He sought to do the word, to live it, and to teach it or to share it. God saves us, friends, to be conduits, not reservoirs. Think about electricity, right? A conduit is something that electricity passes through. It passes from one source to another, like a plug. When you plug a plug in the wall, the electricity goes, a conduit from like the television through that wall into the electrical uh, sockets, into the wires, into the um, surge protector box, or, or rather the circuit box. It is a it is a conduit. Electricity is always flowing. When it stops flowing, there's no electricity. God has called us to be conduits of his truth. We're not to just study his word. We're not to just build up head knowledge and not heart knowledge. The word changes the way we live, and the word changes the way that we share it. We do not keep it to ourselves. We are called to teach other people. Paul said this in Colossians 3 and 16 that we are to teach one another and sing psalms and hymns to one another. And this is a call to all believers, not just uh, teaching elders and other preachers. We are all called. It is the duty of every Christian to teach one another God's word. And that's what Ezra endeavored to do. Not just know the word, not just be changed by the word, but also to teach it and to do it. So that is our challenge this morning. We are to share the word. And providence cultivates genuine affections toward God's word. And as it does that, we seek to learn it, live it, and to teach it. As a parent, I try to teach it to my children. Um, at work when I have gospel opportunities, which I do uh, with some of my customers. I have to do it very winsomely because uh, if, if not, uh, I may violate someone's um, you know, beliefs and uh, that's a fireable offense. So I have to be careful how I share the gospel with uh, bank customers that come into my office. I can't go full stop, <laughs> you know, uh, because you know, they, they get the emails about rating their experience with Ronald or whatever and you know, they may put, oh, he's, he was talking too much about God. And, you know, they say, you know, HR be calling me. And, you know, I, I don't want that to happen. So, uh, but, but as winsomely as I can, I try to do that. And all of us have those type of gospel opportunities, whether it's at, uh, in the workplace, with our family members, with, with friends. As that word burns in our heart, we share it. But also we ought to live it. Again, we're not going to live it perfectly because we are, we're falling, but there should be a consistency to our living as we seek God, as God, as we see God's providence at hand in our lives, we should seek God and we should live it and we should teach it. Amen. All right, we're going to stop there for this morning. We're going to get to the next. That's fine. We're going to get to the next two principles next week. Uh, principles three and four. Um, but let's 
go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, first of all, for your divine providence. I pray, Lord, that as we're working through this, this text and through this subject, that we see your hand in our lives. That as we survey our life, our events, our circumstances, that we can see that you are always there, that you have always been there. Through the ups and the downs, through the goods and the bads, through uh, the moments of joy and the moments of deep sorrow, that you are still there, that you have always been there. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth that you revealed to Dr. R.C. Sproul as, as we learned from him that you don't just watch us, but you watch over us. You watch over us. You, you act on our behalf. Lord, let us be thankful and grateful for this wonderful truth that you're watching over us, that there's not a moment of our life that escapes your eye. As Christ told his disciples in Matthew, the 10th chapter, when he was providing them comfort and warning them about the coming persecution, he told them that the very hairs on your head are numbered. And if the father cares for two sparrows, he will care for you. Well, let us be comforted by those words, by your truth that you watch over us, that you are behind the scenes in our life, maneuvering all of our circumstances, that you are superintending over all the most minute details. And Lord, the great thing about your providence is that we don't even know that it's happening in the moment. We're not aware of it because only you are the sovereign God who knows things. Lord, even as we're going through this life, we're not aware of your providence taking place until we look back. Until we look back and see your hand, how it has been guiding us. And Lord, I'm praying this morning also that we cultivate a desire for your word. That we remember the source. That we work to eliminate sin from our life. That we admit our need for your truth because, Lord, we, we need your truth. We should live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, Lord, that we pursue spiritual growth. And that we survey your hand working in our lives. Lord, may you work through your word to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.